For so many of us, our day-to-day is filled with feelings of bondage, of being stuck. For some of us, it is being stuck with internal struggles, fears, even addictions that hold us tightly. For others of us, it is being stuck in a set of rules we dare not break, fearing what others and God will think of us if we are fully known. But what if there is more for us? What if there is freedom? The rest of you, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians. It's in the New Testament. If you don't have your Bible with you, as always, it's in your order of worship, so right in that little trifold thing. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, we've got about four or five on that back table that I want to give to you. Well, not all of them. Just take one, Uh, but it is our gift to you. So grab one of those. If you can, we're in Galatians 2 this morning. Listen, we live, in a, we live in a day in which our culture, for various reasons, sees Christianity as a straitjacket. It's a, it's, it's, for most of us, uh, culturally, day-to-day, it's a vice. It's something that holds us in. And we think that because uh, we think that for us to be free, we have to be completely out from under any authority, right? No one telling us what to do. That's the only way we can be free. But this book, this book of Galatians, tells us that uh, it, the Christianity is all about freedom. And it is all about freedom because it says through Jesus we can actually be free from our drive to justify ourselves, from our drive to gain an identity for ourselves, from our drive to prove our worth. And it says that this freedom this is given to us as a gift, as a gift to receive, not, not as an accomplishment to achieve. But how, right? I mean, how do we gain that freedom? Paul's already said in our book so far that it's not through ritual observance, and it's not through our cultural preference, so so how is it that we are to do this? How is it that Jesus reconciles us to God? And where does that place us? That's what we're looking at this week. Where does that place us now? So if you have your place in Galatians 2, if you'd stand, that's our habit, in honor of God's Word, we're going to be reading verses 17 through 21. This is God's very word, friend. This is not something we picked for ourselves. It is something that lays claim on us. So let's hear it in that way. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for nothing. This is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, over this time we ask for your blessing and your grace. Uh, Lord, we do not need to invite you into this time. You were the one who called us here, but we do ask that you would, by your Spirit, come and move in us, rouse us. Lord, it is early. We need you to rouse us from our slumber, to soften our hearts, to give us ears to hear, because we need your gospel this morning. And so, Lord, we pray that you would preach it to us. Jesus, let your work and your person come to the fore, because you alone hold the words of eternal life. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. 
Okay, so last week we were in the book of James, uh, strangely, for many of us who are like, we're doing a series on Galatians, we're suddenly in James. But that, that being what it is, let me give us a quick review of where we are here in Galatians. Remember, Paul is writing a letter to the churches that he planted um, in the southern part of what is now Turkey. During that time, it was the Roman province of Galatia. So he planted a string of churches, started a string of churches in that area, and now he's writing a letter to them that's meant to be passed between them. And he's writing them because after he moved on, when he got the churches started and moved on, others followed up. They followed behind him. When they came in, they began challenging both the message he preached and Paul himself, saying that his gospel, his, the message of Christianity that he preached was incomplete. No more needed to be added to it. He didn't quite get it all right because Paul is confused. He, look, he's just not, he's not one of the big three or one of the big twelve, so to speak. And so, like, look, he's just a little confused. So Paul begins the book of Galatians by saying that any challenge or any addition to the gospel that he preached actually nullifies it. Right? It actually gets rid of it. That is no gospel at all. And then he tells a little of his own story, how he, he was not a Christian to begin with. Jesus lived, died, rose again, and Paul was not a follower of Jesus. In fact, he, was, he went from being a violent, racist persecutor of the Christian faith to a zealous missionary. And he made that transition because he encountered the risen Jesus and he learned the gospel straight from his lips. Not from any person, but other person other than Jesus. And then in chapter 2, he shows that his gospel is consistent with the other apostles. That, that we are restored to God through Jesus plus nothing. Remember that little bit of calculus we did. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But Jesus plus anything equals nothing. And we don't add anything to it. We don't add our rule keeping to it. That's called legalism. Nor do we add our cultural preferences to it, which we can call racism. But what, we, but what do we do then with the law of God, right? If it isn't keeping God's rules that makes us right with him, then what are, have we just kind of sidestepped the whole thing? Have we just kind of worked ourselves around it? Well, Paul says no. He says our freedom is, in fact, cross-shaped. And so this morning we're going to look at this passage. We're going to look at it in three ways. We're going to look at, um, we're going to look at locating our rightness. Okay? Then we're going to look at reorienting our way. And lastly, we're going to look at reshaping our vision. All of that can be found in an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful to you. If not, just leave it. Okay? Let's start by looking at the old location of our rightness. Look at verse 17. Okay. First off, we need to understand that this is a continuation. We've not entered a new section. So this is a continuation of what Paul's, Paul's um, uh, discussion, we'll call it a discussion, with Peter. Okay, he's, he's having a little bit of a confrontation with Peter. Jason talked about that two weeks ago. And, and this is a continuation of it. Um, at the end of verses 15, uh, the end of this section that, that Jason preached on in verses 15 and 16, Paul establishes two groups of people. You have Jews who are under the law, and you have Gentile sinners. Right? Two groups of people, two categories, and we need to keep that in mind as we get started. Uh, then he says that no one will be justified, which is Christian talk, for um, made right before God, having a right standing before God. Okay? No one will be justified through the law. In other words, he's just said that Jews may be under God's law, but it cannot make them right. Everyone is in the same boat, in other words. Whether you're a Jew under the law or a Gentile sinner. Whether you've, whether you've been to church your whole life and gotten your little Sunday school badges for never missing a Sunday. Or, uh, you know, or, or not. Whether you've, whether you've worked really hard your whole life to keep God's rules and, and think that you're keeping the Big Ten. Or you've never even, you couldn't even name one. Paul says everybody's in the same place. 
And so Paul continues, but if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we are found to be sinners, is then Christ a servant of sin? Okay. Now, let me be honest with you. When I first read this, what I thought this meant was that is Paul's trying to deal with the fact that once we become Christians, we still sin. And what does that say about Jesus? That's, that's what I first thought that he was talking about here. But that's, that's not it at all. Okay? Remember, he set up these categories. And so Paul is asking the, the rhetorical question. He's anticipating, if I can't be justified by keeping the law, then doesn't that mean that I'm then a Gentile sinner? And that Jesus is against God's law. Do you see that? He's saying, look, if... if You've got Jews under the law. If I can't be justified by the law, in keeping the law, if I'm seeking to be justified in Christ, doesn't that move me outside of these things to being a Gentile sinner and say that that stuff isn't really that important, that that's not a big deal, or even that that's bad? It's an obvious question. It's basically this. Does this mean that God's law is pointless? Paul says, not at all. Okay, now listen, that may sound strange to us, but, but we think this too, right? Because most of us, if we're being honest, we walk around knowing that something is not right, that we're not right. For some of us, that's bound up in a sense of guilt, this, this consistent sense that, like, I'm not good enough and I need to get better. Others of us, it's bound up in the sense of, of, uh, of bondage, of being enslaved. Like, I, I need to do something. I need to, to serve something so that I can get a sense of, of who I am to, to become somebody. But still, others of us feel alienated, right? Like, that we're always on the outside, always not, not really part of the group, trying to get in, wishing we could look in, longing to be noticed, to be wanted, to to be part of the group. Now, we're going to get to why in a minute, but all of us seem hardwired. We seem hardwired. Like, it's just kind of innate that the way to get to fix those things, either our guilt or our bondage or our alienation, is to work harder. Right? I, I have to work harder. If I'm guilty, if I feel guilty, I need to work to do good things to make up for it. If I, if I feel enslaved, I have to you know, serve my job. I have to serve my career, my reputation, my checkbook. I have to serve those things as strong as I can so I can get free. If I, if I feel alienated, I have, to, I have to work hard to endear myself to others so that they'll want me and need me and, and bring me into their group. In any case... What we're seeking to do is to justify, to right ourselves. And so if anyone could claim that they had God's method for it, if anyone could claim that they had God's method for making yourself right, for doing the right things, it would be the Jews, right? Because, look, they they got God's rules. They have the law, and the law was a reflection of God's character. It was what he said is right versus what is wrong. It was his very will. And so if you're seeking to be justified through Jesus and not the law, does that mean that Jesus is anti-law? That he's not for this God-inspired code? Does Jesus just kind of do an end around, around it? Okay, that makes perfect sense. But, but Paul says, we don't really understand what it's for. Look down at verse 18. We're going to look at the end of the map. Paul says, look, if I build up that which I tore down, I prove myself to be a lawbreaker. All right, now this is a little dense, so follow me. What Paul is saying is it. No, 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 you don't, you don't get it. If I have once abandoned my efforts to build a right standing before God on my own, but then I try and do it again, or if I stop trying to use the law to show God how good I am, but then I go back to it, all I do is I, prove, all I, do is I show that I, I, I break it. Okay? What he's saying is this. If you try and keep God's law to get right standing before him, all you're going to really show is that you can't. If you keep trying to keep the law, what you're going to show is that you're just a lawbreaker. Now, for some of us, that's really offensive, right? Because Paul's basically saying that we can't be good enough. Can't be. No chance. And we don't want to believe this. 
Because we play the comparison game, right? Well, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not like those people, right? I'm not, I'm not as bad as that guy over there the, or my spouse. Like, they're, they're really bad, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm the good one in this relationship. Like, we know we're not perfect, but we're not them. It's what I often call the God is a bear theory. Some of you are very familiar with that, right? The, the idea that you don't have to outrun the bear, you just have to outrun the dude next to you, right? And if God's a bear, the, whole, the important thing is that the other guy next to you is slower than you. And we, we often think that that's what's going on. Paul is not giving us room for this. Now, some of us, when we hear that, are like, Rick, listen, dude, I'm, I'm really not that bad. You don't understand. I'm not, I'm not that bad a guy. I know you're not, but listen, you don't have to argue with me. It's Jesus you got to argue with, right? Because he's the guy who, who actually took the Ten Commandments and told us what they actually mean. Like, he's the dude who looked and said, look, yeah, adultery is bad, but looking on a woman, or a man for that matter, with lust is actually committing adultery too. Like, he's the dude who said, yeah, killing is wrong. You, you don't murder, certainly. But don't you know name-calling will send you to hell too? Name-calling. And if you're right now in the middle of doing the language game, you know what the language game is? Where we go, okay, yeah, yeah, all right, Rick, but what exactly is lust? Or how far, how far can you go with your name calling before it actually becomes offensive? Jesus talked about that too over and over again. He confronted it time and time again and exposed it as simply another way to justify yourself. And that is Paul's point. If you want to get under the law, if you want to try and show or try and earn your way to God, all it's going to show you is that you can't. Your only options are to take that bar that's so high you can't reach it and try and bring it down. And go, see God, actually, you should have it down here. You know, it's really really down here. Or just ignore whole swaths of the whole thing. Yeah, I know, I know. I'm a little greedy, you know, I, I... kind of cheat on my taxes once in a while but but you know what like I don't do drugs oh okay again Paul's saying if you want to be under the law all you're going to show is that you break it and the reason is because our problem isn't that we're not good enough listen to me God created humanity in his image we were created to be like him to be in a dependent relationship with him to reflect him into the world And we were made to depend on him for our view of the world, like how the world works, for our understanding of what is good and what is not, for right, for wrong, for our very life, for our breath, for everything. But we began to believe a lie. That God wasn't for us, that he didn't love us, that he was holding us back, that to be in a dependent relationship with him was to be in a straitjacket, to be in a vice. We didn't have to depend on him at all. We could... We could be independent from him, so we betrayed him. We turned from him to our own way. We turned from him to our own path. And when we did this, this had devastating consequences, not just for the ones who did it, but for everyone who came after. Because first of all, we became guilty. We betrayed God, and like any other betrayal, betrayals bring guilt. You know this because you've been betrayed. Betrayals bring guilt. The only difference being that this time, the one betrayed was the very God of the universe. And bearing the weight of our guilt is what the Bible calls hell. Eternally bearing the weight of that guilt. But secondly, we became broken. And what that means is that not just are we we guilty, but now we're broken. That every aspect of our being, 
from our minds to our hearts to our wills are all tainted and, and twisted by that lie that, that our hearts have become set on independence. Because you see, the problem isn't just our behavior. In fact, the problem isn't even primarily our behavior. The problem is our hearts. It isn't just that our actions are wrong. It's that the reason why we do them is wrong. And so that even if, you know, even if we could keep the law, even if for somehow we were to get around that twistedness, which is impossible to do, but even if we were and say, well, I actually can keep the law, then by what we're doing is we're keeping it independently, which furthers the problem. You can't fix your independence problem independently. All of us, every one of us, are fundamentally broken to the core and seeking to be right before God by keeping the law just draws a big spotlight on that fact. That is one of the reasons that God gave the law in the first place. There are at least three that that our tradition holds to, but one of them primarily is to show that we can't keep it, to show that our need is not for rules, that we don't need rules, we need a rescuer. And so let's reorient our way by seeing the new location. Look down at verse 19. Paul says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. All right. Let's dig into this. What, what does it mean to die to the law through the law? To get this, we need to understand what it means to betray God. Because you see, God told humanity in the beginning, if you betray me, if you turn from me and do what I've asked you not to do, if you seek your own way, if you seek to figure out uh, the world apart from me, then what's going to come of that is death. And by that was meant physical death, certainly. But also... Um, what has often been described as, as spiritual death, an eternal existence bearing our guilt, bearing judgment, right? Paul says this in another one of his letters, in, in the letter to the Romans, he says that the wages of sin is death. In other words, what we earn from breaking God's law, what we earn from our independence, what we've earned before God is death. And so what Paul is saying is that through the law and what it leads to, death, he died to the law so that he might live to God. Basically, he's saying that, he's saying, look, I've already undergone the penalty, I've already, my sin, my guilt has been paid for. I'm free of that now so that I can live to God. I, through the law, I was a lawbreaker. I died to the law. Problem being, he's writing a letter. So how exactly did he do that? He, he follows it up right there at the end of that verse. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. What Paul is saying is that Jesus doesn't get you around the law. He takes you right through it. His point is not to say the law is wrong. He brings you right through the law. If betraying God brings judgment, and every one of us has betrayed God, then if we're going to be right with God, someone needs to bear that judgment. You see, the, the, the law shows that we need a rescuer. And Jesus is that rescuer. He, we can't keep the law. But he can. Because he's God incarnate. But he also bore the penalty for our guilt. On the cross, Jesus not only died. Look, if that were it, it was, you know... Lots of people died on crosses. Rome did it a lot, okay? Jesus didn't just die on the cross. He, he bore the judgment of God for sin. And so when we place our faith in Christ, when we turn from our methods of trying to make ourselves right with God to what God's plan was, what God's rescuer, and we trust in him to make us right, the New Testament says we are united to Christ, joined to him. Join to him such that he represents us in a real way. His death for sin becomes our death for sin. His spotless life, his perfect life becomes ours before God. So Paul can say, I have died to the law. The law killed me. 
I bore it. How? I've been crucified with Christ. My sin has been crucified. And now I'm free because of Jesus to live for God. In other words, the location of our rightness before God isn't us at all. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. I have, Paul says, I have borne that penalty by being crucified with Christ. My sin is dead. And that brings us, quite frankly, to what is my favorite passage in all of the scriptures. Um, We've seen the new location. Now let's get direction. Look down at verses 20 to 21. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I do live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself on my behalf. So if that's true, now what, right? Did things just keep going on as they normally did? That's what Paul's trying to answer here. When Paul says, I no longer live, he says, look, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. What he means by that is that uh, he says, I am no longer the captain of my soul. Everything in us, everything in us wants independence. We want our own way to be our own authority, be our own God. And, And Paul is saying that me that wants all that is dead now. And that Jesus, in fact, is the one who is living through me. And what he's talking about is coming back to this idea of union with Christ. Like I said, the New Testament teaches when we place our faith in Christ, we are joined to him. We are united to him by his spirit. That, that uh, when we place our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit, who's, who's also at other times called the Spirit of Christ, comes and dwells in us. Begins conforming us to the image of Christ. Begins making us more and more like him. And Paul says, I'm not the Lord of my life anymore. Jesus is. I've died. But Jesus lives through me. And so he continues, the life that I do live, I live by faith. What Paul means is that his life is now marked by a continual process of placing his trust in Jesus to make him right before God. Placing his trust in Jesus to be the source of his value. Placing his trust in Jesus to reconcile him to the God that he was alienated from. In other words, friends, faith is not just the entry point into the Christian life. It is the continual principle through which it is lived out. It is this ongoing principle. It is faith in Jesus Christ is what the Christian life is about. This this is hard. This is hard for all of us. What all of us want in the Christian life is this triumphant I have arrived moment, right? I've arrived. I'm good now. I'm great. Thank you, God. I've done that. I'm fine. I don't need to keep growing. I don't need to keep coming back to the gospel. I don't, I don't need to keep getting all this. Look, there will come a day when you will have that triumphant moment, that I have arrived moment. It comes shortly after Jesus arrives, right? And so that is coming, but it is not here now. Until then, we live by faith in the Son of God. And this is true of all of us. Listen, I stand up here and I preach the gospel week in and week out, all the while having to remind myself that it is true. That it really doesn't matter whether you think what I've just said is art or garbage. If you think I'm a great guy or a jerk, the gospel is still true. And that is a struggle for me. I have to constantly fight against the notion that God is pleased with me only when I do well. And that is why this is my favorite passage in the Bible. Because Paul says, I live, the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself on my behalf. That order is so important. The Apostle Paul is never like flippant with his words, but here even less so. Like he, The order is important. You need to hear this. I don't care what you did. I don't care if your sin looks really clean, right? And it's all kind of internal, but on the outside you look really nice, or whether you are a train wreck. 
You are no different than me. Jesus came to live for you. To die for you and to rise again for you because he loves you. He loves you. We constantly turn again to faith in Jesus because we trust that he loves us and died for us. He knew our need and not only willingly, but lovingly sought to meet it. Now, let me apply this a little more closely if I can, first by speaking to the shape of redemption. Some of you may know this, others of you don't. Our church is called Holy Cross for a reason. And one of those is because we believe that our redemption or our reconciliation with God is inextricably linked to the cross of Jesus Christ. Follow me if you can. I, I know that we struggle with this idea as a culture, right? We've, we've, first and foremost, like we struggle with this idea that God uh, can't, just, can't just forgive without all this violent, bloody stuff. Right? Why can't God just kind of let it go? Right? And we think this because we misunderstand what forgiveness is. When we are betrayed, when you are betrayed, guilt happens. It happens. And it's a real thing. It can't just go away. Forgiveness is not pretending that such and such an offense didn't happen. That's called lying. Okay? Forgiveness is actually dealing with it. Forgiveness is bearing the cost of that betrayal instead of making your betrayer bear it. So, as I've said often, if you steal money from me and I forgive you, I'm out money. If I get it back from you, it's called justice. In other words, if you pay back, it's justice. If, if I bear it, I'm out money. I bear the cost of it, and I've forgiven you. When we betrayed God, the cost was judgment. For us to be forgiven, that will mean that God himself will bear that cost for us. And friends, that is what's happening on the cross. The cross isn't some tragic event of some great teacher who happened to cross the Romans and suddenly he's dead. The cross is about God himself, God the Son, taking upon him our guilt and bearing it for us. It is about God bearing the weight of our betrayal of him for us. That is what forgiveness is. The offense doesn't just go away. It must be born either by us or by God in the flesh. If it is born by us, it is called justice. If it is born by God, it is called forgiveness. Now here's the implication of that that I want to make clear. It is either one of those or the other. There is no middle ground. There is no other way to be reconciled to God. No other way to return to dependence on him. And that is what Paul is getting at in verse 21 when he says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness, if that right standing before God could be achieved by the law, then Christ died for nothing. In other words, if Jesus isn't the only way, he's not a way at all. If it could happen any other way, then, he, then what he did is useless. It's pointless. If, if you could be reigned right by God, or right before God by your morality, your religion, your sincerity, your meditation, whatever, then Jesus' death is pointless. It is, it is a, a, a tragedy. It is a sign of, the, of the, the false claims of a failed man. And everyone in this room who believes it, especially the one speaking to you, is a fool. If Jesus is not the only way, he isn't a way either. Our redemption as people is inextricably cross-shaped. Lastly, let me speak to the shape of love. Because for many of us, what I just said says something of God we don't like. We want a God of love, don't we? Not this violent God of justice. We want a God of love, not this violent God of justice. And, and by love, what, 
what many of us mean is we imagine our version of God to be uh, like Santa Claus, right? And you know what I mean by that? The guy who always threatens coal but never brings it. When has he ever brought coal? Come on. He always threatens it and never brings it. He pretty much gives us whatever we want, no matter what, is pudgy and cuddly and tame. Friends, love is costly. Love costs us. Look, I have a wife and four kids, right? I have a wife and four children. If I want to love them, it will cost me. It will cost me my time. It will cost me my freedom. It will cost me my ambitions. It will cost me at times my pride. It will cost me because they will hurt me and I will have to stay in relationship with them no matter what they do. Look, I mean, on the front of it, I have, I have two old, my, my two oldest are daughters. It's beginning to cost me and my own vision of myself as cool, right? That's, that's slowly fading into the background to being an embarrassment instead. Like, it will cost us Love costs because it seeks the good of the other without regard of the self. If you want a God of love, don't look at the vision of Santa Claus. If you want a God of love, look to the cross. Look to the cross. Paul says it well. He says that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, Jesus giving himself up to death flowed from his love for us. The cross is where God's love and justice meet. You and I really have betrayed him. We can't pretend that we haven't. We really have. We know that we have. But out of love, he was willing to bear what we should have so that he could be reconciled to us. Love costs. And to love us, to seek our flourishing, it cost God everything. It cost him everything. If you want to know how much God loves you, look to the cross. I don't know what you've done. Honestly, I don't care. If you didn't do something worth dying for, Jesus wouldn't have done it. He wouldn't have done it. It's not like he had nothing better to do on a Friday evening. Of course you did something worth dying for. But he loves you and was willing to bear that judgment that you and I deserve so that we could be reconciled with him. Will you not lay your life into that? Listen, placing our faith in Jesus joins us to him so that our sin is dealt with. So that our place before God is secured with his perfect life. We didn't earn it. We didn't earn it. Paul says, I don't nullify the grace of God. That means it's completely unearned. I I don't nullify that grace. It comes out of God's unmerited favor born from his love for us. And when we come and we place our faith in Jesus, we are joined to him such that he brings us through God's law. Through God's expectation. And he is the only way, the only way, without addition or subtraction, that any or all of us can be right with God. Would you pray with me? Father, you are good. And your grace is amazing. And your gospel is true because in Jesus you have come. That our God has come into our midst and he has lived for us and died for us and risen again for us. Lord, I pray for uh, my friends in this room who struggle to believe that. I pray for those who struggle to believe that this is really it. That this could be the only way. I pray that you would open their eyes to see that if if it is not the way, it is not a way at all. 
And I, I pray for those of us who struggle day in and day out to live our lives by faith in the Son of God. That again we would turn and place our trust in Him to be our source of rightness, our value, our worth, and our reconciliation. Whether we are believing this for the first time or for the first time in the, next, in the last five minutes, Lord, we, we need to return again to the gospel. And so I ask that you would work this in us for the sake of your name and for the sake of our city, that they would see a people uh, recklessly believing in the God who has reconciled them to himself. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.